Blog Talk Radio. It's already done. It's the Pressure Points Unpacked Podcast with host Tyra Little. We're live Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. This show deals with personal and community issues by getting to the root cause and causes on an open and raw level. We're unpacking emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical topics that influence and often control us. Get ready to unload, examine, and process. Let's get unpacked on Never Handed So Good Sports Media Network, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, hello, and welcome to Pressure Points Unpacked Podcast. I'm your host, Tyra Little, and today we're going to continue the conversation on the prison system. So this is part two, but however, today we're going to talk about the system inside the system. So I have with me again, as you know, for the month, I have Minister Denise Walden, and I also have with me Mr. Bainsley. So if you would, um, we're going to go ahead and open this up. So I actually... um, want to start with um, with you, Jane. Um, let's talk about, because I know a lot of times, you know, people talk about someone is in prison, um, they're in jail, but, and this is not to insult anybody's intelligence, but just to get to the foundation, the basics, since we're talking about breaking down the systems inside the system, um, we won't be able to hit on all of them, but we're going to hit on some of them. Um, Let's start by explaining the difference in jail and prison. Okay. Good evening. Uh, jail and prison is, it is two different things. I know that most people just see it as being locked up, incarcerated, so they, you know, uh, merge the two together, but they are different. You know, a jail is a holding facility, technically. Um, it's a place where individuals are held until trial. They're, all, they're given a bond in most cases according to the offense if they are mm-hmm. in jail. Um, and if they are sentenced over 90 days, then they are no longer allowed to stay at the jail. Any, any sentence 91 days or over, you're required to go to prison, which is different than, than a jail. A jail is in most counties. Most counties, of not every county in South Carolina, has a jail. Uh, there are only 21, well, I'm saying only, but there are 21 prisons <laughs> in South Carolina. Out of 46 counties, there are 21 prisons, and wow. there's a jail only in every county, which which makes it, you know, a lot of places to be incarcerated. I know that's nothing to celebrate in any capacity, but I was just giving you the numbers, you know, compared to the amount of counties. There's, there's almost just about half amount of prisons as there are counties in South Carolina. But uh, jail is a place where you can place bond if someone's arrested and, and assume guilty. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not. They're not actually found guilty until they actually went to tr- go to trial. Uh, right. In some cases, you can be found guilty, and then, like I said before, to 90 days or less, then you're allowed to serve your time in the holding facility technically called a jail. Wow, well, I definitely thank you um, for opening that up and um, just explaining the difference. But now as we go into just to talk about and to begin to break down the different systems that is inside um, inside the prison, the prison system, um, let's talk about the differences, what well, the different types of um, prisons that you have. So let's talk about state and if you could kind of, you know, give us an understanding of each one as we go through because we know we have state, we have federal, we have private. And we have military. And um, I'm actually happy to say, and I see that she's actually already on the line, um, we're going to have with us um, someone that can break down the military side of the prison system. And her name is Sandy Morris, and she's a retired senior master sergeant. So I'm going to bring her on in a few when we get to um, the military side of the house. So if you would, James, if you we want to go ahead and start off with, um, I guess you want to start off with, with the state. Okay. Uh, state prisons are prisons that are ran by the state, and they're funded by the government. Mm-hmm. So basically it's 
basically a prison that is in your your state that is, that is maintained by the state, especially to incarcerate those who've been convicted of serious crime. Which, <clears throat> which I know individuals who listen to me say, well, all prisons hold criminals, but a state prison is, is basically funded by your tax your tax dollars. So your tax dollars help prisons that are that are funded by the state, which is different than than private prisons. Private prisons are prisons that are associated with the state, but they are ran by a corporation. Um, and so corporations make money off of the state by housing offenders. Those those prisons are more, you know, considered to be more dangerous because there's less structure there. There's less control. Uh, there's no laws to abide by due to the state as long as the state is making money. I know some would say there are laws to abide by, but when the corporations are making money for owning a private prison, then the, the ultimate goal is to fill the prison to make money. I know that sounds harsh, but that's the reality of the prisons. And then you have the federal prison, which is ran by the federal government, and which is a total separate entity, um, and they're funded through, through federal dollars, and you are there if you commit a federal crime. Does that I hopefully that's not confusing to anyone. Yeah, no, no, actually, no. I mean, you've you've actually broken each of them down. Um, I'm getting ready to bring Sandy on, but I want to go back in ten in a few seconds after we get Sandy on the line with us. Um, I want to go back and I want to hit on those private <laughs> those private prisons for for a second. Um, okay. So right now, um, Sandy, I want to welcome you to the show. I thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day um, just to help us understand the military um, side of the house, if you can kind of explain, because I know with the military as well, um, you know, you get in trouble. You, you know, we're looking at from the angle of double jeopardy. I, well, I want to call it double jeopardy, but I mean, you got a dual system. It's not double jeopardy, but you you got that dual system to where you're subject to the rules on the civilian side as well as military. So, Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And uh, there are a lot. There are actually lots of uh, criminals that are in military. And I would not have believed it myself had I not witnessed it. Uh, a little bit about me, I am retired three, you know, for three years now, but my last active duty military position was I was the superintendent in charge of uh, Air Force corrections. And without peeling back so many layers of the onion, um, just to give you a little bit of background of mm-hmm. what we do and what you're talking about, when a military member is uh, suspected of an offense, whether they are on base or off base, it depends, and I say base because I'm Air Force. I know that um, some of the other <laughs> services refer to it as, you know, uh, installations or anything else. But for the purpose, a base and installation are um, inherently the the actual physical location that most of the military operations occur in your state or in your local community. I know in um, in South Carolina, which I happen to be from, uh, the you have Fort Jackson, and they refer to it as um, a military installation. So I'm going to. Well, no, they call it. They call it a fort, Sandy. No, Sandy, they call it a fort. Yeah, it's a fort. Uh huh. And then on Navy installations, they call it something else. And, you know, um, so anyway, I'm just going to try to refer it to Fort Jackson since you guys are all there. But if you are on Fort Jackson and uh, a military service member decided they wanted to, to or they wanted to commit a crime, whether it's on base or off the installation, on fort or off, uh, if they're off the installation in the local community, then the person would be uh, apprehended or jailed in a local confinement or jail facility, and then they would then contact the uh, whoever the person's commander is on the fort and ask them if they want to, um, depending on the seriousness of the crime, they would ask them whether or not the military wanted to handle the service member or if the civilian or local um, authorities wanted to handle the service member. But, again, it depends on what the actual crime is. 
if it's something that's very minimal, like DUI or uh, something to that effect, then typically the military member would be released into the hands of the military official and the military member or the military court system, uh, for lack of better terms, would handle what, what was happening. But it also depends on the jurisdictions of the base, and uh, there's lots of other things that go into that. So if it were a, um, a, a felony or something that's uh, really large like murder, then typically the person would stay at the local uh, jail facility until he or she reaches or goes through a court date. And that's basically putting it, you know, very, very lightly. So in terms of um, how we do it inside the military, uh, again, we do have level one correctional facilities that each installation in the Air Force is supposed to have where we would have our local military police be responsible for housing and all of the care for that member or two until he or she goes through what we call in the military a court martial. Um, if the offense is high enough for it to go to court martial, then they will then, um, that's what the local, the, the outside or civilian part, they call it uh, trial. So a court martial and a trial are essentially the same thing. After the member, if the member is um, proved innocent, then he or she uh, is allowed to be released like normal, but if he or she is found guilty, then they go to a sentencing phase depending on their job. And they will then decide whether or not, uh, depending on what the person did, that person can be judged confinement from one year to life, depending on what he or she um, was, was convicted of. In the Air Force, we um, basically have something called Level 1, 2, and 3 correctional facilities. Level 1 mm -hmm. is for anybody who is a judge confinement for less than a year, and they will stay locally and then get out. If you are a, a judge confinement for anywhere between two and 10 years, then you would go to a level two correctional facility. And that typically is held in uh, Miramar, California, where all the services house their level two correctional or confinement. And then again, uh, your level three are the ones that are a judge confinement for more than 10 years to life. Those are the most serious offenses, um, some, something like murder or uh, uh, anything that would be considered a serious offense. And that's, uh, that federal prison is typically what you would refer to as uh, Leavenworth. Leavenworth can house anywhere between uh, anybody who's a judge confinement from 10 years through life, or if you have a death penalty, which we, we typically don't have those in uh, the military, but there are just a few, but that person would be housed at Fort Leavenworth. And that's just a very brief overview. I can get right. long-winded, but that's just a very, very, a very brief <laughs> overview of the correctional facility. No, I mean, uh, I, I think you did back awesome. over to you, Kiki. <laughs> I think you did an awesome job of breaking it down. But let me ask you a question, Sandy, um, mm -hmm. because I was speaking with someone recently, and they told me of a situation to where um, there was an alleged crime, and on the civilian side, um, the prosecutors didn't feel like the person who said that this particular thing happened to them, um, the person was not a credible witness. And so mm -hmm. because of this, they kept changing the story. Um, the civilian side actually dismissed it. However, mm -hmm. the military picked it up and this person was actually sentenced. And right. I, I, was, so, I was really, I was shocked about that, though. Okay, go, if you can go ahead and elaborate on that. So we could say, if, if I could fill in the blank with um, sexual assault, right? And so if the victim says, uh, if their story continues to change and the civilian authorities believe that the person um, that was, that was considered the, uh, that was accused, if the civilians thought that the person that was accused, you know, didn't do it because of the credibility of the witness, then, mm -hmm. and they decided not to prosecute. But there's something called Article 92 where the circumstances surrounding the crime 
may allow you to be convicted of uh, disobeying a lawful order. That's a fail-safe for pretty much everything else outside of the actual crime itself. So if they can prove that you were drinking underage or if you were um, smoking marijuana or doing some other behavior that was criminal and they can put you in that place, then it may fall under Article 92. You might not be uh, convicted of actual sexual assault, but you could be mm -hmm. convicted of everything else, prosecuted and convicted of everything else outside of that because you were, it was found or the, the person accused was found to be doing something that he or she should not have been doing in accordance with military regulations in the UCMJ. Wow. So basically, Article 92 is a catch-all for whatever we may miss. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because for it, and, and that's why sometimes I, I, I would always refer to, man, you know, when you're dealing with that UCMJ, it's like, it's, it's a double jeopardy kind of thing. Because even though you held to the letter of the law on the civilian side, but on the military too, and it just, you know, it seems unjust that when a person can they can dismiss it on the civilian side, but then you're still punished. So it goes back to kind of, um, you know, Denise, I know you, you're welcome to, to chime in here as well, but to me it just feels like, man, it goes right back to our discussion a little bit of last week of, man, you know, when we're talking about the justice system, it, it just, it really isn't justice, <laughs> you know. Um, it's, it's not and I fair. I will say that. It may be considered double jeopardy if the crime were exactly the same. So if a person, you're only, and this is how the military sees it, if you were convicted or if you were prosecuted for sexual assault in the civilian capacity, say that, it, for instance, they went through the trial and uh, on the civilian side of the house and the person was found to be not guilty, and then the military came back and then and then get a court-martial for the same sexual assault case involving the same two people, and uh, it was found, he was found guilty, that would be considered double jeopardy. True. What should be happening is you can't convict or prosecute once, I'm sorry, once, uh, so it's, it's got to be either or. It's got to be the mm -hmm. civilian authorities are going to handle it or the military authorities are going to handle it for the exact same crime. So right. if for some reason, it, it, you know, um, if somebody tried to prosecute for the exact same crime, then it would be considered double jeopardy. Yeah, I, I mean, and I know that part, but you know, you understand what I'm saying. Like, it yes, just sir. feels like it's yeah, like, woo. You know, I mean, it's like you, you're going to get hit twice because you're in the military. So it's like you're governed by even more stricter ruling you know what i'm saying it's, it's mm -hmm. like the the ironclad is, is totally different um huh and it's it's just it's it's unfortunate you know and and i kind of chuckled at the fact that when you were talking about you know you didn't realize until you started working you know in that system of how many criminals but we got to realize people are still people they just have different jobs cool. different positions become a part of different organizations and it happens but now my question, another question for you is um, the treatment of the inmates because, you know, we talked about the unfair treatment that happens on the civilian sector, but mm -hmm. what about the military? So um, I can break it down in a couple of ways. So you have, what I see is that officers or those ones that are appointed by the Congress to be commissioned get far less sentencing than do enlisted members. Mm -hmm. That's what I could just tell from my standpoint, my perspective, based on the time that I was there. Right. Enlisted members typically get a harsher sentence than would an officer get. Mm -hmm. um, and, and normally that's for the same crime. So if it's child molestation or if it's sexual assault, uh, if it falls into those categories, what I see is an officer typically gets a, a, a judge confinement for a far less time than an enlisted member. And then I don't know if you guys, um, for a couple of years ago, where USA Today published an article that says people of color or black people 
get uh, a judge confinement or they get prosecuted at a far higher rate than mm-hmm. would their counterparts who are not black. Mm-hmm. There's a USA Today article and the Air Force then confirmed it um, by saying, yes, this is what we're doing. And so now what we've, what we've gotten over the past couple of years, because now I'm a civil servant, um, what we've gotten over the past couple of years is, you know, a lot of diversity and inclusion training. Right. 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 And, and I will say, I, I know you're spot on on that. For those of you who don't know, um, I'm retired military as well. And um, I remember um, Sandy being on the gate one particular time, and <laughs> we had a drunk driver flying in. I mean, when I tell you this this guy was, like, wide open, wide open. I mean, we were literally about to hit the button, man, because, I mean, he was just and so – the other guy who was on the gate with me started waving, waving them down like, whoa, whoa. And so literally, finally, he heard him because he had the window down and he screamed, stop. And he stopped. Well, when the guy stopped, he was drunk as all get out. So, you know, we got him out of the car. Um, you know, of course, went through our whole routine and what we're supposed to do dealing with a drunk driver. And, um, you know, we called our flight chief. He came. And I was really disturbed and angry because he was an officer. And instead of them doing what they normally would have done, they did not. You know, he got a pass. And I was really angry about that, and I talked about it later. I said, there's no way in the world that if he would have been enlisted that you guys would have allowed him, you know, to get away with that. You know, y'all would have definitely handled it differently. I mean, they took him back. They, you know, gave him stuff to help sober him up and all of this other stuff. And then called somebody else, let him call somebody to come and pick him up to come and get his car. Now, that, we both I don't know. know. Huh? I, I, don't, I don't know if you understand what my job is now. So I'm a civilian um, police program manager. And ah. all of the police officers... <laughs> I handle or I'm responsible for managing all of the training from hiring to, you know, the end of their, their tenure in the military as a civilian police officer for the Air Force, right? I did. Uh-huh. And so when they attend training, we just recently made it mandatory that all civilian police officers, no matter what they've done previously in the, in the Air Force, they have to go through or re-go through um, a basic police officer course. Many of them don't believe that they, they should because they have that background. But I believe in 100% training. And the training has to be fair. And that's what we talk about during there. A lot of times people will look at either their friends or officers. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to toe the line and you have to be able to understand that nobody should be getting a pass or anything else. Because then your credibility is ruined after that. Absolutely. Now, we Absolutely. a lot of a lot of the civilian law enforcement work that we see now in Minneapolis, in Kentucky, mm-hmm. all the things that have happened in the past couple of years, and even beforehand, um, until somebody is able to stand up and say, you know what, this is wrong, I don't care who you are, uh, it doesn't matter what your standing is in the community, if you're wrong, you're wrong, if you're right, you're right. And what we have is a lot of police officers that are afraid because other police officers have scolded them for doing so. We can't have that anymore, not in any law enforcement capacity. So my point is, yeah, we have to make it mandatory where, you know, you you have to be able to discern um, what's right and what's not. And if you're not, because we will get rid of police officers that are going through formal training that can't. They, they, they can't understand that concept. And my point of view is good risk because I do not want you uh, working in that capacity, and I do not want you to be a liability for, um, for the rest of the Air Force, and I do not want you to be able to lend uh, your credibility because of or damage my credibility because you don't care about yours. Absolutely. Process. But I'll be yeah. quiet now. <laughs> no, man, I, I appreciate it because you're coming from a from a different angle that only 
another military person that has basically held the position that you that you have retired from and now holding that can actually speak to. So no, I'm 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 grateful that that you're on here. Definitely grateful. Definitely. Um now I want to talk a little bit about um and I'll run this back to James but also um I want to run this to Denise as well because I know that with you being out there um dealing with the prison system dealing with people after they have gotten out and just overall dealing with the unfair treatment of everything um I know that you run across um some of the different the gang members because we 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 have to we can't talk about any of you know breaking down the the parts of the prison system without even um you know addressing the gang so i'm trying to figure out do james do you want to kind of go first to go back into that and then we roll into denise or how do you want to do that are you want to to cover the the private prisons first or you were talking about the gang. That is right. Thank you for keeping me on task. See, this is why the disciples always went out in twos and threes, because they had somebody else to keep to hold them accountable. So I thank you. Let's go back to the private prisons for a second, because, you know, when you begin to talk about the private prisons, and, and I believe this this is where you begin to get a little bit of co- corruption. Correct. Um, and, and that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go, go ahead. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying you're correct, and that that actually, yeah, that actually leads into that gang situation, because private private prisons, like I said, are ran by corporations, Mm -hmm. and actually private prisons are, you know, they 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 make almost three hundred and seventy four million dollars annually, and that you know that gives them incentives. Yeah, they they cut they cut facilities down, you know, um, staff training things of that nature. They cut because it's a private facility, so they want to make as much money as they can for themselves. So they don't hire, you know, the amount of staff needed to secure the prisons. Uh, the facilities aren't up to date. So, of course, you know, that also uh, causes more turnover. You've got more workers are being overworked and underpaid. So, of course, they're not doing their job effectively to, to, mm-hmm. to the most. So a private prison is a, is a, is a money-making business, just like I stated earlier, you know, $374 million. Actually, as of January of last year, President Biden signed an executive order ordering um, them not to renew contracts with the private prisons. So he's trying to do away with them. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that actually stays in place. But you know how executive orders go. Hey, the next the next president can reverse, you know, change and make himself yeah. another order. So it's, it's you know a political game play is trickling down into the prison system as we stated last week, and here we are again, you know, addressing it from the political aspect. So politics plays a lot in everything, and uh, especially those private prisons making so much money. So you thinking about prisons mm-hmm. and how many of those owners of those prisons are in those judges' pockets? That and that's you know? exactly where so, I was going when I said the corruption. Right. Yes, that's where yeah. I wanted to go. Right there, bingo, bingo, the judges. Because now, if they get it to the place, and if this is, and just like you said again, the executive order. But if we can get that thing to where. Um, they're not renewed, you know, now it's going to change the way some people rule. Their pockets are no longer getting lined because there's a lot of people who are getting a lot of unfair sentencing. The, the, the time definitely does not fit the crime, but it helps to line that person that's passing that sentence down pocket. You know? Exactly. You are, you are 100% correct on that. You know, you, you think about a sentence that's given and that seems unfair to us. We're we're looking at it from the, the true aspect of the crime, and they're looking at it from what's been said to them, you know, personally. And what's 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 in it for them personally? What what could I gain from this? If I sentence this man to a program that's associated with a corporation, will my pockets be lined? Uh, you know, they 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 look at things like that. I I've personally seen it. You know, I I don't have evidence of it. I have no mm-hmm. one to, to name, but I've seen sentences where I've, I've sat there and I said, well, there's no no way that guy should have gotten that much time. But, you know, when you look back and think about it and think about the situation as a whole, as I said last week, sometimes you just have to follow the money and it'll, it'll, it'll have all the answers. <laughs> we may not like what we find, but it'll right. have the answers. Right. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Um, Denise, I know we, we've been hitting around a lot of stuff, um, but I, I want to speak to, because I know that when you have a lot of people, you know, once they're, they're getting out um, and you guys are trying to help them out, and I'm pretty sure that there are some um, conversations that you've had with people um, that you can bring to the table without, you know, disclosing, which I know you wouldn't dare disclose anybody's, you know, um, personal information by naming who's who. But, I mean, I, I know definitely that you have, just from some of the situations that we have mentioned, um, something definitely to add to the conversation. Blessings, absolutely. And it's been quite a rich conversation so far. Um circle back to uh, a couple of things, right? So, like, mm-hmm. in New York State right now, there's about there's over 60,000 people who are incarcerated in our state, right, within the 52 correctional facilities in our state. And when we talk about, and I heard, um, and please forgive me because I cannot think of your name right now, but when I heard her share about the military and Sandy. the stuff around that, Jeopard- hi, Sandy, yes the military and the stuff around double jeopardy, it just made me think of the unfair sentencing that we see as a whole um, mm-hmm. in communities, right, especially when it comes down to black and brown people where judges decide they want to make examples out of, right? And mm-hmm. it's almost also used as a punishment when individuals don't choose to take the plea deals that the government gives them. And they offer them these mm-hmm. deals. Why? Because financially, it benefits the government to give them these things, and more than likely they know they're going to take the opportunity to violate them. And so we talk about double jeopardy. I think about that a lot of times, right? They offer them a plea deal, but in that mm-hmm. plea they're going to end up on probation or parole, and the whole purpose is to then violate them and reincarcerate them. Mm-hmm. And again, especially in communities of color, and then to the point of law enforcement, a lot of times I find that military personnel are held accountable in many ways, right, when they violate laws, but and more so than police officers, right, like people who patrol regular communities every day, they violate laws all the time, and most times mm-hmm. instead of them being held accountable, they end up with promotions and pay raises because in right. order to appease the public, they take them out of the position they were in and put them in a position that comes with a higher rate of pay and a higher title, but it's less visible community. And so why are we looking at and holding military um, folks to one standard, but then our police officers to yet another standard, right? And it's it's just, it it amazes me. I know one of the individuals that died in the Erie County Jail um, happens to be a firefighter. But they did not know that when he was arrested. Um, he was arrested for a minor offense and then ended up losing his life. And, of course, then there becomes all these extra excuses and things as to why, right, and playing around with the investigation because now it's a person of a different level of status that is drawn a different mm-hmm. level of attention. But that's the crazy thing about how our jails and our prisons are allowed to operate with little to no accountability, right, for their actions and their neglect and their abuse. And so I agree with Sandy when she said we need to look at accountability overall and a standard overall and hold people to that standard. And when people who find themselves in positions of supposedly providing a public safety service are not doing that and have indeed violated the same laws that they are supposed to be upholding and protecting, they do need to be accountable, um, the same as anybody else. But then there's also, again, that rehumanizing part, remembering there are human beings like the rest of us, so mm-hmm. not expecting a harsher sentence or a double sentence, but absolutely demanding accountability. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and, and as you said that, Denise, it, it really made me think because I, I think back again about how when it comes to the military, how you're held to two different, basically two different courts of law. And just thinking from the spiritual 
perspective of that. Sandy, I don't know how how do they do with the the chaplains um, when when um, when military members are are locked up? And here's a really good question because I just this just hit me: Do they have um, mental health counselors with the military facility? I'm glad you asked that. I'm glad you asked that. So we were responsible for um, typically. As an airport correction superintendent, we typically oversaw the level two and level three correctional facilities. Those are the ones that, you know, have the higher or longer uh, confinement rate. The level one correctional facilities on the installation have their own uh, chaplain program, their own, and those are the ones that are sentenced to less than a year. So the local chaplain on the fort or on the installation will go and visit. Now, and they can still go, you know, they'll take them in and out to go to mental health appointments if necessary. Now, with the level two and level three correctional facilities, we have to have, each service has to have a mental health counselor. So there is a staff that we are responsible for that has an actual mental health doctor, and we are responsible for um, rehabilitation and treatment for those members that are uh, sentenced for two years and, and higher. So they have to attend. Now it's up to the inmate whether or not they want to attend mental health counseling, whether sexual assault counseling, any other things that were associated with their, um, with their confinement. They have the opportunity to go to uh, lots of those, um, those classes and programs and then receive time off of their sentence if they complete those programs. We have the uh, we have the responsibility to um, rehabilitate so that when they are reintroduced back into the community, that they don't um, they don't recommit an offense. Now our recidivism rate is pretty low uh, if you look at certain statistics, but for the lower crimes, the people that have drugs or anything else, they will definitely they will normally um, recommit the crime. So it, it, it just depends, but the level two and level three uh, correctional facilities, the ones at Miramar in California and Leavenworth, and um, mm-hmm. they're the ones that we have to have mental health doctors on staff and uh, counselors on staff. And they, we do offer programs uh, as a, it, it's mandatory for us to do so in those correctional facilities. Over. Wow. Wow. James, I think they almost look, the military may have that mental um, component kind of figured out. But now let me ask you this question. I just thought about something else as as you were speaking. Um, so normally, hmm, normally once the military member, I guess, has served their time or whatever, they're discharged. Mm-hmm. So after that, then you guys really don't have anything else, no, no dealings with them. So there is no, like, probation and parole set into place? Or at that point, do the military member now have, I don't know, probation and parole say on the state level? So there is parole, believe it or not, and probation. And if they violate, so what happens if they are released on parole, if they're released early, mm-hmm. then we have to uh, – we have to assign them a local, because, of course, they're not going to be back in the military. So wherever they right. are going to their homeless records, mm-hmm. we, uh, we communicate with their probation or parole officer, and their parole officer will let us know uh, if, for some reason, they violate. And then there is a, a second hearing that we have uh, with our probation and parole um, council that mm-hmm. will decide whether or not they have to come back to the military to be reconfined if they continuously violate their probation and parole. And for wow. some reason, um, so, go ahead. And, so, and so, so hold on. So, so parole, I, go ahead. So, so, let me, so let me be clear. So let me ask this so we can be clear on this. So once a military mm-hmm. member is released, say if they get released, just like you said early, they're placed on mm-hmm. parole, but their parole is governed by on the state level at that point? Is that what you're saying? No. No. Unless they owe the state some type of um, – unless they owe the state some time, mm-hmm. 
we communicate with their local. So once we release them, it's called a parole and clemency board, I believe. Now, uh, I've, again, I've been out for three years, so I kind of threw all over the way. But, okay. Um, what should happen is uh, we communicate with the place, so where the, wherever their home of record is, they are assigned a parole officer or a probation officer. So and that who parole is it? Or probation officer, it's, it's a local person. So, so that's like what I'm asking. Right. Yeah. So then that means that it's so, because probation and parole is is on a correct me if I'm wrong, James. That's state level, correct? No, they are federal probation agents. Okay, that's what I was trying to. That's what I'm trying to. That, that's what I'm trying to get at. So I'm trying to find out, Sandy. I guess maybe I'm not asking the question correctly, but I'm trying to find out who becomes the military probation officer is it so is it a federal thing or is it because or does the military have their own probation and parole you understand what i'm trying to have their own probation officers so it would be somebody i don't know that level of detail of who actually the probation officer is but i do know that we communicate with them okay so james are you familiar with would you know who would actually when it comes to a military member that's being released from the military prison, who would be the, how would their parole, probation and parole be handled? It would be a federal probation agent in that place of where they reside, um, who stays in contact with the military in regards to the compliance level mm-hmm. for that individual. Um, they wouldn't well, transfer them over to state, like you said, they wouldn't transfer them over to state unless the restitution is owed to that state mm-hmm. in some capacity. Then, it's a jo- then it can be a joint level supervision where he would be on state and federal, on state and federal right. supervision, which there are some individuals who are on state and federal probation. My yeah. Lord, that, that. Yes. Oh, because there that, are sometimes where um, the military will prosecute for a different crime, and then we that person will serve their military time, mm-hmm. and then because the state has charges or has prosecuted that person also. Once they're done with their federal time, then we release them to the state, and then they have to serve state time. Or it could be right. vice versa. Or it could be concurrent. It just depends on how they're, how the person was prosecuted. Right, right. You know, and and, I, and I've heard of that piece. I'm just, I'm just shook right now at the piece of the parole side. I when the never in a million years thought, and, and that's why it is so good to have these type of platform conversations so that we are more informed and understand what's going on. I never knew that someone could be on, you know, probation, probation and parole answering to state and federal. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. That's, that's a lot. So then let's, let's hit on the, the different relationships that um, happen in prison, because when you you, you think about um, probation, the the um, COs, the correctional officers. So, James, I want you to lead us on into that. That's a, that's a very slippery slope nowadays in regards to the uh, yeah. inmates and the and the workers, the the, the COs, um, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's and it's a huge problem throughout the prisons because. COs have a relationship with the inmates. And I mean, it's not always a sexual thing of that nature, but sometimes it's a relationship where you're working a night shift and night after night for 12 hours a day, you're locked in just as they are. And so, you know, you're dealing with individuals who have, if they were given our master, they'd have a master's degree in manipulation. You know, so you're constantly hearing about what these guys can do for you, you know, financially. So some of these guys look at what they do for a living and their actual paycheck, and they're willing to take that risk. So a lot of the um, things that are brought into the prison are brought in by field. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and they're brought in when they're coming onto their shift. You know, so mm-hmm. it is relationships that damage the prisons. Uh, cell phones, contraband, I mean, all kinds of contraband. I don't even want to begin to name it because of contraband right. of all kinds that, right. that are brought into the prison system. And a lot of times, you know, the inmates who have a relationship with the with the CEOs, it, it, it's 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 a business. You know, some of the CEOs are actually leaders of gangs that are working in the prison. 
Right. So it, it, it's a system of corruption throughout the prison system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I was going to ask my officers, Correctional officers don't get paid that much, if we're being honest. And it's, right. that's a really hard or difficult job that many people don't want to do, and you're paying them low wages. Almost the same for teachers. Right. Yeah, you're, 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 a prisoner, you're a prisoner for 12 hours a day. I mean, you're right, right there. Correct. I mean, you yeah. are mm-hmm. in there. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, locked, you're locked in just like they are. Um, you yeah, know, just in, like in, they in, are. In, yeah, I mean, and, and to that, it's like, man, mentally. So I wonder, and I don't know, you may can answer this for me, but um, do the insurance, do the state provide the correctional officers with any type of mental health counseling? They, they, they would if, say there are uh, resources available. That's, that's the terminology they would use. Resources are available. Mm-hmm. Is it mandatory? No. I believe it should be. Yeah. I mean, because you, you think about doing this, say you say you work your entire career in, 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 in law enforcement in the correctional facility. That's an average for 25 years. That's 25 years. So you served a life sentence My Lord. as a, an employee. Because a life sentence is 25 years. So you served a life sentence as an employee. So what would your mentality be when you retire? Wow. You, you, you know, wow. Your how, would, how would your mentality be when you retire? Very fragile. You've seen it all. You, you, you've seen it all. You've heard it all. Um, the, the inmates look at you like, like a counselor. I mean, like how many things you have to turn, turn your head on because you know there's nothing you can do about it or there will be nothing done about it, so you have to turn your head as if you've never seen it. I mean, it's it, it, it's a lot, and I I've, I've actually spoken to a few correctional officers, and they they endure so much, and a lot of times the turnover rate is so high because mm-hmm. they just can't continue to put them put themselves through that on a daily basis, and and like saying for for the minimal pay. Absolutely, and even if you were getting even more pay, but see again, this right. is why just like what we just said, it needs to be mandatory that they have to go through some type of mental counseling. Now, Denise, let me ask you this question because you know you guys are dealing with a lot of the things that's happening in the prison system, and um, just from you being the compassionate person that I know that you are, um, have you have in any of the different organizations that you deal with? Um, is there some type of a, a segment in here or where you guys would deal with maybe the CEOs or even thinking about, man, the CEOs' mental health? Um, I definitely would say that it's something that has been thought about and it's something that has been discussed. And, again, it is it is something that is available to them that is not mandatory. But what I do want to say to that is there is, a mentality, right, like a mental state that's developed over time where a mm-hmm. lot of times when I've actually had conversations with CEOs, they don't think they need mental health counseling. They don't think that right. they've endured anything that has been a trauma or an issue with that mm. be service that they need, and I, that is unfortunate, right? Um, yes. And then, again, I would just challenge people to think about the culture that they are working under and the corruption that is our jail and prison mm-hmm. industry as a whole, right? Yes, um, there have been CEOs that have been found to participate in some unsavory activities, and mm-hmm. yes, they're not paid well. But from the top down, there are some things that are allowed in those places that are allowed because it's seen as helping us to maintain order, helping us to keep stuff in check, or keeping just enough chaos, right, to allow for certain other things to happen or financial gain at the top. So, like, we can't ignore the fact that it's it's a corrupt culture altogether. And so Mm -hmm. every layer is involved from the top right down to the persons who are incarcerated. Um, And so you have to deal with the whole culture. And when you're dealing with the culture, you have to start at what's happening at the head of it. And, again, that goes back to, we have to follow the money. What's happening yeah. money is at the head of it. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, Denise, let me ask you another question. Do you ever find, you know, this is um, before COVID, um, you know, when clergy members were, you know, allowed to go into the prison system, and I don't know how they're, like, opening that back up with the whole COVID situation, but um, do you know of or have you ever found yourself as you're going in maybe to counsel an inmate, but maybe even given some type of um, spiritual counseling to the COs? I believe that spiritual counseling for COs is necessary. Mm-hmm. It's definitely something that I know several clergy have offered, um, but, again, it goes to that culture. And so if you are a clergy person who has challenged the culture, just like in other parts of community, right, they kind of, shut you out, they don't want to hear what you have to say, and the folks that they will align themselves with are folks who are similar-minded in that culture, which is problematic, because then they're not truly receiving spiritual counseling, because, again, there's an alignment there that benefits a select few and is really not about the well-being of the individuals who are being housed there and should be coming out rehabilitated and restored and ready to thrive in community. And so I I will say that it's definitely something that I would love more conversation about is Mm -hmm. something that I think there are a lot of individuals that would be open to it, but before that can happen, um, it needs to be seen as a need and it needs to be seen as something that it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation, but sometimes you have to lean into the discomfort to get the change that we want to see. But, again, then will that change benefit the culture, yes or no? So it's really understanding what we're up against. And you all know I'm an organizer by trade, right? And so it comes down to uh, when you're not trying to fix something that's broken but operates the way it's operated, can you really reform something that is doing what Mm -hmm. it was created to do? Or do you need to reconstruct something completely different? And so mm-hmm. I think that's the conversation um, that's happening on our end of things of what needs to be constructed that looks different than what we have because we can't reform what is not – it doesn't – in their mind, it doesn't need to be reformed. It's doing what they need it to be doing, if that makes sense. Right. No, absolutely. And, you know, as, as, as talking and listening, man, this, this has really, um, really been good – but now, man, my mind is spinning because it's like I listen to what James said, and I'm listening to you, but it's like, man, when you're talking about somebody has worked um, as a correctional officer, just like you said, 25 years, man, they, they have served a life sentence. And mm-hmm. it's like they come out with the same mindset as the prisoners. I don't need any mental health. I don't need, I don't need to be counseled. So it's like, my God, at some point, everybody's, mindset that's in there, you know what I'm saying? It's it's like you, I don't, I don't know. I, I, and for one, you know, I guess you have to have a special type of way of thinking just to even do that job, period. You know what I'm saying? But even in that, you have to understand that you chose that job so you can't treat people like they're animals. You still have to realize that that's another human being. It doesn't give you the right to mistreat them, but then also it doesn't give you the right to bring in contraband either. So it's like, you know, that that mindset, it, it's something how being in an environment, you can become a true product of it because here it is, you're supposed to be the person that's enforcing the different things, but now you're becoming a part of it, but you still think that you don't need any mental or health. Empathetic. Or the uh, question is, why right. do you think you're better than or more human than the individual that's incarcerated when you're technically committing the same crime that they're incarcerated for. But for some reason you are more human than and better than because you have a title or a role that comes with what is perceived as power, right? And Mm -hmm. so I think like that, 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 how come some people are subject to the law and some people aren't, even though you're breaking the exact same law? Mm -hmm. The prison, inside the prison, it's there's a different world. It's their own world. Um, we talked about, we touched on it earlier about the gangs that are in there. You know, um, besides church on Sunday, the, the most segregated place is prison. 
And I hate to say it, you know, churches are segregated by, by denomination, and you go into the prison system totally segregated. You have individuals where most who commit the harshest crimes, they're kept in a certain area. You have uh, Aryan Nation. You have the Nation of Islam. You have the Mexican gangs. And you, you go to the prison here locally. You say you've been to a state prison here in South Carolina. Uh, they're divided by, by the cities. If you're from Charleston, you, you're, you're over here. If you're mm-hmm. from Aiken, you're over yeah. there in Columbia. And so, yeah, it, 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 it's that type of system. And most correction officers are in pods, what they call the area where they keep the inmates. Mm-hmm. It may be 30 to 1, you know, 30 inmates to 1 CO. So they, they have the influence over that, that correction officer because he feels at a disadvantage. We touched on it earlier mm-hmm. about them seeking out mental health. Unless something happens to a law enforcement agent that jeopardizes right. his mental health, he or she will not seek help because once yeah. they seek help, they believe it will make them vulnerable. So if I'm performing at what I believe is a high rate, I don't want anything to change my mentality because I don't want to become vulnerable and, and, and consider myself to be weakened by admitting my my weaknesses. And that's what some people see counseling as is, it, it, right. It's confessing your weaknesses and, and, and bringing it and making yourself vulnerable. And right. in some capacity, they don't get the true gist of, of what counseling is and how it benefits you. And now we mm-hmm. look at it more as taboo. Right. As if I right, go there, right. I'm admitting something's wrong. And then once you do that, once you start talking to a mental health counselor, I know, uh, Kiki, I'm, I'm pretty sure you remember, in the military and probably correctional officers too, but once you start to seek out mental health counseling, there is your jeopardy of losing your weapon, which means Absolutely. you cannot work anymore. Yep. And there's certain don't want, and so people will then see, they will look at you as being weak or whatever, but also you're, you're balancing that with how many more hours do I have to work to get a full paycheck, knowing that I don't make that much money anyway. So when you start to seek out mental health counseling, you're in jeopardy of maybe losing your weapon, which means you cannot work and you can't provide for your family. So it ends up being this, uh, this circular effect of just bad things happening all over again. And until it all becomes a boiling point where you're forced to do it because of something that's happened, it's going to continue to be that way. But mental health, I believe, in, in our community, is something that we, we often overlook anyway for Black and brown. Oh yeah, no, it's 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 a stigma around it, and that's that's the things that mm-hmm. we've been talking about, and that is the reason for this platform, so people can understand. Because when we went through some of the segments in the earlier episodes dealing with um, childhood trauma and stuff, I was amazed at how many text messages or conversations that I had with people after those shows, saying, "Man, mm-hmm. I did not realize that I was suffering from childhood trauma." You know, um, we have to continue these type of conversations. And this is the reason for this particular platform um, so people can actually recognize and they can see that there's, there's, there's a need for it. There's a serious need for it, you know. Um, we're not in this world alone, and everybody has a job. And if we all begin to fall in and operate in the divine callings that we have, man, nobody should feel alone. You know what I'm saying? Um, we just have to be there for each other, you know, and we have to be open to hear. Sometimes you're going to hear things that you don't like, but if if it fits the bill, you may want to examine that thing, you know? Y'all, this has really mm-hmm. been good, um, and we just have to begin to start having more call to action, you know, after this, you know, because I, I no lie, I felt so overwhelmed <clears throat> at the last week. I was just, I was just like floored, just like, man, I mean, I shared that with y'all, you know, last week on the air. But, um, you know, not to, I, it wasn't to the point of feeling that there was no hope because there, all, there, there will always be hope. But we all just have to do the best that we can and love on each other, man, and just, um, and just try to be there for each other. So, y'all, we are hitting into um, into that time. I mean, it, it has went by really fast. So um, 
I want to quickly, Denise, I'm going to give you, I know you got to, you got to run, you got to get to class. If there's anything that you want to say real quick before you, um, before you have to get off the line. Thank you. Thank you um, so much for that. Absolutely. So I want to first say to folks, one of the key things and one of the most important things that we can do is normalize mental health, right? We have to normalize it. We have to, as a community and as people, let people know that this is part of our everyday life. This is part of our health and well-being, just like getting a physical, just like tending to a broken arm, just like treating something if you you struggle with any kind of chronic illness. It's not about being weak or deficient or not up to the task, but this is how we maintain ourselves so that we can continue to do the things that we are purposed to do. Um, also, uh, to, to community members and folks, something else we need to work on, can we talk about something that will help shift what we're seeing in this injustice system? One of the things we need to talk about is humanizing language. How are we using mm-hmm. humanizing language? Um, things like, so for instance, in my work, we no longer use words like inmate or convict, but we say carcerated people or formerly incarcerated people or uh, carcerally impacted people or justice-impacted people because we want this injustice system to realize that we see every person who is incarcerated as a person, as just mm-hmm. that, because if we paint them as people, they will start to see them and treat them as people. Um, mm-hmm. And then That's there's a the need to call for accountability and transparency. And so a way that that can be done is by calling for community advisory boards, whether it's over um, your prison or over your local jail, right? Like we need visibility. We need that transparency and we need that accountability. And so Mm -hmm. if folks have questions or want to know more about what it looks like to set up a community advisory board, whether it's over corrections or the local jails, again, please reach out to me at denise at voicebuffalo.org. But also we have a national network called Live Free, and you can Google them and link up with them, or Faith in Action National if you're a person of faith who wants to engage in this work. Um, And then the last thing I will leave you all with so I can jump in class is get involved two ways. Get involved by looking into what policy um, is on the table when it comes to mass incarceration and mental health in your direct community and get involved with groups who are working on those policies, and then mm-hmm. also get involved with groups who are doing work around your county budget, your state budget, and your city budget. Because, again, you could always make change when it comes to the money. Absolutely. Absolutely. I thank you so much, Denise. Um, I, I thank you. I appreciate you. Um, Sandy, um, thank you so much. I appreciate you for jumping in. Um, and giving the listeners um, a perspective coming from the military because, you know, again, when we talk about the system, you know, a lot of times people don't think about, you know, the military has a different justice system. Um, So I I thank you so much. I appreciate you. Um, If you have any last words that you want to give the listeners, you're more than welcome to. I will tell you, and I'm going to try to be brief, but I appreciate everything that Denise just said because the last wrench that I'm going to throw in is that my dad has been incarcerated for my entire life and probably will be. Um, I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but I'll go more into that if ever I'm invited back. So I'm having to, you know, understand every perspective. I know when I was younger, uh, there was nothing that could tell me, like, my dad was just guilty. And as I've become older and been in the military and also been a law enforcement officer, seeing the consignment stuff, seeing all of the police stuff, all of the things mm-hmm. that I've learned over the past several years has just uh, softened my heart to understand my dad. Um, he was, you know, he's incarcerated as a result of the three strikes and you're outlaw, and so he has life mm. for something that I don't believe, um, you know, he should be incarcerated for. So I... Right respect and appreciate the work that Denise has just mentioned briefly, and I would love to come back and um, just listen in or chime in or whatever. Oh, but definitely. also, I can understand this perspective from, you know, what I do for a living and be able to educate. And that's how I feel like I can make a difference, is just educating other police officers um, and other people to make sure that we are accountable. 
everybody has Absolutely. to be accountable for everything. And uh, I appreciate you inviting me, even though it, it was just last minute, but I appreciate <laughs> you inviting me, and I would love to hear um, to join in on some of the uh, future conversations, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely, Sandy. I definitely appreciate you. Thank you. Mr. James, what you got for us? Hey, once again, thank you for having me. Uh, as I stated last week, you know, change comes with with the Change comes with 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 platforms like this. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is the beginning of change for some. You know, one person can listen to this and hear nothing, while someone else listens and it changes their life. You know, because mental health is a destination. It's not a destination, excuse me, but a process. It's about it's, about it's about about how you drive. It's about where you're going. You know, and right. a lot of times we we uh, overthink. When it comes to mental health, we you know we we, mm-hmm. we pride we can get prideful, we get prideful in our thought process as to what's going on, and I just once again I just encourage individuals to open their mind to the issues that that have have taken place in their lives. And I heard you say something earlier about childhood trauma. You know, mm-hmm. all of us have been affected by something in our That's childhood right. that determines our actions today. So That's right. never think that you are, or your life is so perfect mm-hmm. that you can't open your mind to the understanding that mental health may be something that you may need to seek because it may also open up your heart to things that you have been blocking out that cause you pain and stress and anxiety mm-hmm. and all the things that come with the illnesses of, of, of living a facade. Absolutely. As if, you, as if, as if the pain doesn't exist. So once again, I thank you. I look forward to continuing with you throughout this month, and uh, you're doing something really special, and, and, and the blessing is on you. And I thank you. Oh, Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, I'm gonna ask you guys. Hey, make sure you listen in next week. Next week, we're gonna continue the conversation. Um, about the prison system, but we're going to deal with probation and parole. So, again, this is Pressure Points Unpacked Podcast, and I'm your host, Tyra Little, and we will see you next week. It's already done.